welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so people who need social work get help that will transform their lives. Welcome back to Series 7 of Helpful Social Work. I'm Jo. And I'm Jerry, and in this series, we're going back to some of the central elements of social work practice and thinking about how we use our whole self to practice social work. So each podcast, we're trying to look at an element of our physical practice and explore what goes into that area. It's loosely based around kind of human senses. So last month we were talking about listening and speaking, and today it's going to be observation. And just thank you for um, tuning back in to Helpful Social Work after we had a a bit of a break. Um, it's 10B review of the year, which went out uh, last month, um, has had 600 downloads straight away, which is fantastic after a yeah. bit of a break. Um, and also, we keep saying every every week, please tell us what you think on helpfulsocialwork.com. Um, and actually, I need to go and find those comments when they come in because they come into the back end of the WordPress site. So we've had some comments that are really lovely and just not acknowledge them up till now. So I did want to just um, shout out to a few people. So Kaylin, thank you for um, your comment around the equality podcast about sexual orientation um, and talking about how um, that helped with listeners gaining a, a bit more of an understanding about how to approach those kind of social work issues and saying that our approach was warm hearted and open minded, which is what we were really, really aiming for. Um, and that it was good that we weren't claiming to be experts. So I think that you, re you really captured in your feedback the kind of thing that we we're trying to do to push ourselves mm. and hopefully some listeners out of the comfort zone, um, but keep that like uncertainty about about what we know. Um, and, and do it in a kind way with each other. I think that's the thing, isn't it? Is is to yeah, which I I loved that. I I really thank you, Caitlin. I loved reading that. It was a lovely a lovely comment that you spent a lot of time thinking about. So thank you. Yeah, we've had a couple of comments from people saying they found um, our podcast helpful. So thank you, Nicola. Danielle, who's a student social worker, um, talking about the um, usefulness of the History and the Safeguarding podcasts. And Yimi C um, highlighting the, the importance to, of including service user voice and empowering people mm. in the partnership work that we that we undertake. Um, and we we have a podcast with Mona Lisa coming out. Mona Lisa um, uh, it was is, um, was quite challenging in her comment around the importance of um, keeping that discomfort um, around anti-racist work mm. uh, and making sure that it's not performative. Yeah. So, yeah, I will try and keep a better eye on those comments. And, and thank you, because it does really help us to, to know how we're how we're doing. Mm. And gives us opportunity to improve or to, um, yeah, to to feel I, you know, that we're connecting with people because that's how you feel, don't you, when you hear the when you listen to comments like that. It's lovely. Yeah. So as um, as Jerry said, um, and just to let you know that that you know you still can find us through iTunes, Spotify, Twitter, and LinkedIn. So please do share with others. Um, we have stopped our Facebook page. It, yeah, that was yeah. me. I just um, I think I've probably had Facebook since the early days, um, and I just. I've, I've yeah, keeping track of that was yeah. just one one two social media account too many so yeah I think that's a thing you know like Jerry and I do this um podcast because it's a passion of ours um and we fit it in amongst many other passions so I think you're allowed to drop Facebook Jerry that's okay yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I let you off um <laughs> but as as Jerry says we're we're you know, in this um, series, we're getting back to actually thinking about what helpful social work looks like on the ground. And we're starting off um, with this podcast thinking about observation. And um, we thought we'd start with some definitions, which I think is all it's always really nice and helpful. Um, what what does it mean to observe? Well, the dictionary suggests that it's uh, to be aware of especially through careful and directed attention. I like that idea of directed attention and to notice or to watch attentively. Um, and it's from the Latin um, and the meaning of it is to watch over. And it's more than just to see, because to see is to perceive with the eye um, and to observe, you know, has that, that idea of that careful and directed attention, that idea of attentiveness, intentionality and purpose. 
And for me, what all of that brings about is this idea that observation is not a one-way process. Simply by being an observer, you actually change the behavior of the watched. So we know as humans when we're being watched, when we're being observed often, we're aware of that, and that changes our behavior. And so I think it's really important that we hold that in mind whenever we go in to do an observation, um, that it is not, that it's a transaction. Even an observation is a transaction. And as such, it is shifting the way the other person's behaving. And we need to take account of that. The other thing for me is that you only notice what you notice. And I think it's really important to hold that in mind. Um, I had a conversation earlier with Mona Lisa Earle, who, as Jerry has said, is going to be our, our first guest later on um, for this year. We're really looking forward to talking with her. And in this conversation, um, she spoke about the margins and what happens outside the picture. Um, in, in that case, Dr. Earle was speaking about borders in comics and graphic novels where she's been exploring the treatment of, of queer women of colour in that genre. But we'd been thinking about why we draw the borders where we do and what we leave out of the story. Mm. And this felt really pertinent to me as I thought about why do we notice what we notice, comment and write about in our observations and why do we leave things out? And I, I've I often um, do work with people where I get them to do an observation, a video observation, play a long interaction, a video of um, a long video of interactions between a parent and child. And I ask the practitioners to tell me what they notice, what meaning they put on what they notice and why they think it matters to the child. Ask them to include what theories and knowledge they're drawing on to inform the observation. There's always lots of things in common that they notice. The reasons for noticing them are more varied. Mm. But what is really interesting is that nearly everyone notices something that other people did not. And so part of the exercise, we start to ask, why haven't the rest of us noticed that? Yeah. So that, you know, it's, um, you know, in practice for me, what don't we notice? And would it have mattered if we had? How would it have changed things is, is something for us to think about. Yeah. And again, you know, we've talked this series is really about shining a bit of a light on the skill and expertise and depth of some of these things that seem quite simple. And mm. that, that just highlights it, doesn't it? You're watching something, noticing, noting down what you notice. It sounds quite simple. Mm. However, the, the depth of things that you can draw out of that um, and the experience and skill, yeah, and empathy that's required. And the knowledge that is underpinning the the meaning, your, the interpretation of those observations, which is all happening simultaneously. None of this, it's not like we're doing one bit, then another bit, then another bit. We're watching something, we're interpreting it, we're drawing back on our practice wisdom and our research and evidence-based knowledge to form a thought about the meaning of that observation of what we're seeing in front of us. And that's all happening that's rapidly. happening in real time. And that's yeah, why the reflection afterwards as well is so crucial, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, if you pull apart any of these skills that we take for granted – pretty awesome aren't they yeah and for me i mean observation is it's so crucial because it goes beyond just asking someone something if you ask yeah. someone and they tell you that's a level of of knowledge and understanding but showing something seeing something is 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 different yeah, it's deeper i think um because mm. yeah, if you're looking at the best predicator of what people will do it's what they do now mm. um and so if you want to understand somebody getting in there and being alongside them uh, so i think that's why we have more of an emphasis on observation of social workers practice rather than just tell me about it in supervision um, because there's this real awareness um, that we need to see we need to be in there um, mm. and one of the ways of kind of understanding that is 
um, looking at some of the research around how people, particularly children, because there's a lot of research that Harry Ferguson has done on that, um, how children are visible or invisible. Because there's also something really fundamental about being noticed, to use your word, being seen, being mm. um, yeah, being visible. Uh, so I was just looking back at some work by Harry Ferguson from June 2017 in the British Journal of Social Work about how children can become invisible in child protection work. So what he's done is um, with colleagues in Birmingham University, we've talked about this before, he's, he's observed social workers in practice um, and seen what, what they're doing and what they're noticing. Um, and, and in this case, looking at when they don't notice things. Um, mm. And so he's he's provided this analysis of, of when social workers essentially are overcome by the intensity, the emotions around the work and the complexity of it. And to some extent, stop noticing the child in the midst of that. Mm. Um, and the, the, there's a couple of phrases I wanted to pull out of that. So one is around um, this idea of intimate practice in order to engage with people and to really see them and really notice them. Um, so in the case of children, that's um, he talks about eye to eye contact, talk, active listening, play, touch, close observation. So not just sitting back and observing, but being right in there. Mm. Um, and also talks about going beyond the idea of a child being invisible or unknown and saying an unheld child. Uh, so there's an absence of the physical and emotional closeness that's required to truly enter the child's world, mm. uh, which is a really fascinating concept that you've kind of got to be right in there. Um, and also he highlights some of the factors around when children are invisible or unheld. Um, and it's when the, the context is kind of intolerable um, that the social worker doesn't have. You've talked about this, you use this word quite a lot, the bandwidth to let mm. that um, that observation happen, to let, to let things be noticed um, mm. and, and says that the real importance is that when that when we're in those situations, which we all will be in our practice at, at times, that we have colleagues who can alert us to the fact that that's happening. Mm. So that, that question of you, know, how did it go? What did you notice? What, how was the child? Puts you back into realising that you probably that you, you you know in some situations you won't have noticed enough they won't have been visible enough they won't have been held enough and then you've got the opportunity to go and do that that crucial work yeah and it's a, as you're talking about this Jerry, i love harry ferguson's work um it's always i always find it in i always get really inspired about social work after i read a piece of his work um and one of the reasons is is because he's really watching those the relational interactions and really thinking about them, you know, what makes helpful social work in those interactions, which I think is fantastic. And it made me think about how children have a lot of experience. Children who um, who are involved with children's social care have a lot of experience in um, adults who have low bandwidth like because what you the kind of distress and the difficulty you were talking about that that um immerses social workers of course is often immersing their parents mm -hmm. and so you know their parents have that reduced bandwidth as well because they're preoccupied by whatever it is that that's happening for them and children are unseen and unheld in that environment um and then if they're also unseen and unheld by the helper that comes in that that's you know um really critical for us to be thinking about uh for me though i i i kind of took me into that world of of walking in and thinking about i'm going to do an observation you know what goes on in our head what goes on um what do we think we're going to get from that observation? Why are we doing it? And how are we behaving when we do it? And I, I kind of was um, thinking about observation for um, relationship building, which is one of the things Harry Ferguson was talking about there, going in and holding the child and seeing the child. And I was also thinking about another type of observation we do um, that we probably do a lot in the adult world as well as in the child world. Um, because my first ever placement, I worked for CHADS, which was a child health 
um, and disability service. It was multidisciplinary. So I worked with an occupational therapist, speech therapist, psychologist, health visitor, another social worker. And whenever there was a baby or child suspected of having a disability, we would arrange an observation. And this really involved us doing a set of specific tasks with the baby and child and then observing their responses to make a diagnosis. That's what we were going to do. So we were very aware of the impact of our behaviours and emotions in the, in the session and we worked very hard to create environments where the baby or child would feel safe enough to explore and show their natural personality and behaviours without too much interference from us or the parents, but we were still giving them tasks like stacking cups or sorting colours or holding beads or using motor skills, those types of things. Um, and I imagine, Jerry, that you probably would have done some of this work in adult services too when you were thinking about whether people, you know, um, in the multidisciplinary teams, whether people actually had the balance and the strength and the abilities that they needed to have independent living, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And alongside the kind of formal times that you would do that, um, maybe on a home visit, there's also that informal noticing of those things. Absolutely. Yeah. How and, does and the person move around their home and that kind yeah. of thing? Yeah. And you're deliberately observing those things, aren't you? It's a, you're going in with a deliberate intent. And I think for me, it is important to know what you're trying to observe and why you think it matters um, and that you know your purpose. And if it's to build a relationship, then let them lead the interaction. Because um, that's, it's really important in that stage that you don't come in with that agenda, but you allow them to show you what they want to show you of, of themselves. And I used to work as a school counsellor and I used to say to children on their first visit, um, where's your favourite place? And they would take me to wherever it was that they, it was their favourite place in the school, the place they felt safest or they had the most enjoyment. I actually got stuck inside a piece of play equipment doing this once. Um, <laughs> but I got a great bond with that kid as a result. <laughs> but I think um, it's about, in terms of observation, if it's about motor skills or cognitive ability, you want to make sure everyone understands exactly what you're looking for and why. You, um, If it's about attachment, you want to set up scenarios where the behaviour is triggered. In other words, you know, being on hand to observe reunions and separations, as well as those times when a parent's trying to gain the child's cooperation, which is a typical stress point in any parenting. And I really think you need to be open and clear about what you're trying to observe and make sure that the interpretations of your observations, those type of observations are informed by three things, your knowledge, and by that I mean the research and the evidence into the area you're thinking about, your practice wisdom, which is your past experience, which has been taken through reflection and tested and stood the test of time, so become wisdom, and the person whom you are observing, interpretation of what they did. So checking out I, when I saw this, this is what I thought. Yeah. What does that make you think? Do you want to tell me what you think about that? I think that checking back in with the person you're observing really matters because otherwise your own bias can work really strongly and mm. you can seek out observations that actually confirm what it is that you think. If you're a bit anxious that an older person is unstable and can't manage in their own home, you might notice when they are hesitant or when they kind of stumble, they might have new slippers. I mean, there could be a whole range of reasons and, and, and just asking and checking those things out, I, I, I feel is a really important part of observation. Yeah, and if that goes back to the, the work around um, observing us in practice, that, that that would ideally be developmental, not judgmental. So you're looking to what you and the person can learn. And that involves a reflective dialogue. So you, sh you should never be observed in practice and have someone write it up and say, this is what you're like. You should have mm. a conversation about about it. And it's exactly the same with, um, I want to say, well, this is what you're like. This is how you, what, it's, what, what you do is like, because you're not mm. judging or looking at, you know, it shouldn't be judging. We should be doing it in a non-judgmental way anyway, but you're never drawing inferences about who the person is, are you? You're, you're, you're looking at what they do, mm. um, which is really different. 
And it can be done in such a lovely way, can't it? I actually um, had an experience of getting some feedback um, on an observation uh, between my, myself and another family member. Um, and it was done really gently, but the but there was lots of really perceptive and helpful insights into it. And um, she started off by saying, shall I tell you what I noticed? Yeah. And yeah, I so thought that, that was just specific. so lovely. Yeah. yeah. Shall I tell you what I noticed? And then she just went through the things that she noticed and just went, well, I wonder what you make of that. Yeah. And then she let us talk back. Um, and then she talked a little bit more. And, the, and when she responded to us, she brought in a little bit. Well, the reason that I thought about that was because this research here tells me da, 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 da. And that was why I thought that that mattered. And so she actually then started to demonstrate what she was pulling on in her noticing. Um, and then we could have further conversation about that. So it was a really lovely conversation. It can be done so well. Um, but I guess what that implies, Jerry, is an, the observation is almost the start, the actual seeing mm. and the watching. That's just the beginning of the whole process of observation yeah. because part of it has to be the feedback, doesn't it? Yeah, and it the opportunity to, to make meaning together. And it's interesting yeah. as well what you were saying about the fact that the observer is also noticed. Yes. Yeah. Um, and we do change things. And I was thinking about the the kind of lens that we observe through because we make you know, that meaning making mm. draws on assumptions yeah. and kind of cultural and personal and social ideas of what behaviors and places and um, you know, contexts mean, mm. um, which is where we need this cultural humility. And I found some um, work by Joshua Hook and colleagues talking about um, cultural humility is the ability to maintain an interpersonal stance that's other orientated so it's open to the other mm. um, it's open to um, accepting that that our cultural identities and experience limit our perspective and an awareness that other people bring different experiences so you try and root your meaning making in the other person's perspective mm. um, and and again what you want the person to notice is cultural humility so that they 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 can show um, their own meaning without that block of your uh, misinterpretation or assumption. Uh, and I found some really some interesting research that I think highlights this. It gives an example of this. It's around um, it's um, Cynthia Kiri's work again in the British Journal of Social Work um, quite recently, 2021, about um, it's actually the article is called Parenting and Fear, Child Welfare Micro Strategies of Nigerian Parents in Britain. Um, and it highlights as an example the way that our, through our Western parenting lens, we can problematize or you know, make assumptions immediately about how um, African parents might parent. Um, and so it, this was a um, work research that, looked, had, that had interviews with parents from Nigerian families. Um, and also focus group discussions and highlighted how the the fear of misinterpretation um, and the way that we would the lens that we would um, place on on um, how the family was working can actually cause um, people to resist social workers resist child mm. safeguarding professionals um, and then that can then be um, uncritically interpreted as people being uncooperative um, or resistant for a reason that isn't to do with that worry about mis misunderstanding. Um, and so you kind of get into a cycle of, of yeah, of, of kind of, 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 of not being able to be open. Yeah, defended communications and defended observations where neither party is actually able to be com completely natural um, because of that defensiveness. You know, one one party thinking I've got to protect my family, and the other party thinking they're hiding something, um, and that taints the observations. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, and and for me, 
I love there's a there's a phrase you've written here um, which really really struck me when when I was thinking about this topic um, where you say um, it's the aspect of cultural identity that are most important in this case it says to the client but to the person you're working with so finding ways in observations to allow people to show you the things that matter most to them about living independently, about parenting, about um, managing their mental health, about whatever it is, and finding ways and spaces to make that happen so that you can see it as well as hear it is is really important, isn't it? And and we have to feel safe to be able to sh- to show what we say, actually. Mm-hmm. Because you think about it even for, for um, think about social workers, uh, children, social workers who are having to be observed in practice, um, you know, under the NARS. It, for, for a lot of them, there was that feeling there wasn't enough safety created for them uh, to be able to yeah. do that in the, in the way that they want to. Um, I think when I think about that kind of lack of safety, I think one of the most difficult spaces to lay down bias and to do a good observation is around court-ordered contact observation. Yeah, even the word contact though is, is is yeah yeah. I think it's been challenged to be more about family time, but of course contact yeah. is the legal term, isn't it? Yeah, it sets the scene. It does, and you know it's very easy to sit and judge all the actions and the interactions. Sit in the corner, you know, you, you've got your pad, you're trying to be unobtrusive, but the the stress of the situation and the falseness of the setting, just and the rooms are often small, so the person's intrusive anyway, um, and the child and parent are conscious and anxious. Um, a lot of the noise that can be heard is scribbling in the background, um, you know, so the stakes are really high, but at the same time, it feels so fake, mm. not like you would do it if you could do it in real life, you know, um, and, I, and I'd urge social workers when they're, when they're in those situations where they have to observe things to really hold in mind how it feels for them when they have to do a role play for a job interview or they have to do something that clearly feels fake because I think that the way contact is set up through the courts often is like that, experience like that for children and families. And I was working with uh, people only last week, the week before, where what the mother and the adolescent child was saying was, this doesn't feel natural. This isn't what we do normally. Normally we just go home and hang out and eat some takeaway and have a movie we wouldn't be sitting in a cafe somewhere in the middle of town that's not what we do why do we have to keep doing this when it really lessens the quality of the time we spend with each other so when you when you're in a position where you have to do an observation and there's lots of ramifications of that observation Creating psychological safety is a real challenge and something that's quite important, I think. So I wanted to talk about, again, going back to the idea of the lens that you notice things through. I do like the word notice, um, the, the value of using the lens of intersectionality, because I've been involved mm. in a, I am involved at the moment in the change project, which is a research and practice kind of action learning project that research and practice um, are running in England, working with them. Um, with Soraya Nayak, who has been facilitating some sessions and talking about this idea that the lens of intersectionality, which is about exposing the way that different elements of oppression affect people's experiences and their identity and how things intersect um, and kind of connect with each other and collide and the impact of that. Mm. Um, Soraya talks about the going before what you notice she says you've got to have the vocabulary you've got to have the meanings to then when you notice things hang the noticing onto yeah um because if you can't name it you can't Mm. notice it Mm. um and then if you can't notice it you can't act on it Mm. you can't reflect and then act on it so it's almost yeah we have this cycle of kind of experience reflection action um 
well, experience reflection kind of with that analysis and action. Um, mm. But you kind of have to have the um, the theory first, you know, the, the the meanings to then inform your experience, to then inform the reflection mm. and the action. Um, and yeah, I suppose what she's talked about is that intersectionality is a way of reflecting on and capturing with the person their situated knowledge. So it goes back to you, you the idea that you're trying to notice what's important to the person. And so you have to make the meaning with them. Um, and I would definitely recommend to people to have a look at Critical and Radical Social Work, uh, which is a, a journal. They've, they've just done an open access edition um, in August 2022, a special issue on Black Lives Matter, which has been guest edited by Sarai Nayak and Charlotte Williams. And it's it's got some really wonderful and perceptive elements in there that help you, yeah, name things differently, see things differently and then mm. notice things um, and act on things differently. It's interesting, isn't it? All these parallels that are happening in the social work world, because I've been working with Kendra Hausman, um, whose uh, company is called Out of the Shadows, and she is um, an expert on county lines. Mm. And she's also, um, she was herself uh, a young person involved in gangs. So she has that experience as well. And she also talks about exactly the same thing, Jerry, which is that you've got to know the vocabulary. You've got to know the language. You've got to know the things that are happening in order to be able to notice them and understand them. Stop expecting the young people to tell you. They're never going to tell you. Why should they tell you? It doesn't make them feel safe. You've got to come in with enough knowledge to be able to notice. Mm. And um, so she's, interestingly, you know, a lot of her stuff is powerfully talking about that. You can't, if you can't, you can't name the problem, then you can't see it. If you can't see it, you can't do anything. Uh, that would be exactly what she's saying as well. So, you know, there's lots of movement out there around us starting to realise that our observation is not from our own point of view, um, but that we need to come in with with um with, quite with a powerful knowledge. technique for doing yeah. that is um I read I read a research around this and I've I've tried to use it in my practice um is to reflect back on an experience and physically in your in your memory of it move yourself into a different position mm. in the room. So if I mm. was having this conversation with you where I'm, I'm looking I feel like I'm looking at you this way yeah. um I would because we, we can see each other on camera everyone we're not just doing an audio <laughs> then when I was playing it back in my mind if I wanted to understand it more from your point of view I would actually get up from my desk and turn my chair around so that I was sitting in the in the orientation that I could see you in mm. and it changes your your viewpoint mm. um, so you can recall a room and put yourself in a different position um and and free up a you know, a bit of sensory space. Yeah, that's um, it's really interesting. I used to um, when I used to work um as as a counsellor in schools, I used to do sand play therapy, and um, when we would build the sand tray, um, the child the child would build their world. And they've been busy working in the sand and, you know, putting all their animals in and building their world and doing all the different things. And when they finished, I used to say, OK, um, now stand on this chair and look down on your world and tell me what you see. So I would get them to move around their world, around the sand tray and describe it from different points of view and see what they saw if they looked above it if they lay flat next to it, if they turned it around a different way, what kind of things were they noticing and what were they seeing? And I was using their their observations of what they were seeing and their noticing to help me understand what they were trying to say in the world they built. Yeah. So I think that's that's kind of the same idea, isn't it, is of, of moving and shifting perspective. But in this case, you're doing it mentally, ima imagining. But you can also, when you're working, doing direct work, you can do it physically yeah. um, and listen to people's answers. And, that's, and this is the kind of, you know, because as an, as an observer, you need to see things differently. You, and we need to bring our expertise 
but lay down the idea of us as an expert, if that makes sense. The expertise is our knowledge, um, research and practice wisdom, but the expert is the person we're working with, not, not us. And so we really need to bring our curious self and be really willing to share our knowledge. So kind of enter into a partnership with the people you're observing. Tell them really clearly why it's helpful to understand certain things. And don't try to kind of set them up for a task that they don't understand the purpose of. So I don't believe, you know, you should never try to trick somebody. It's not necessary. Yeah. You'll be and able I think to that, see clearly whether people yeah. can do things or not. That can happen inadvertently, can't it? If we're kind of have that clock ticking of we need to figure out what's going on, mm. you kind of go in wanting to to make meaning, mm. and you make it too fast. Mm. Yeah, you do, and but but you can only make as much meaning then as you because you're only making meaning by yourself then. Mm. So you've got that's all you're relying on. Whereas if you actually make a collaboration with the other person, then you've got the meanings they're making as well. And two meanings are better than one. And the other thing that that triangulation you're talking about of practice, wisdom, research and the person situated knowledge. Yeah. And I think the other thing to remember is that the people that we work with, there's often really strong emotions around them and there's, confusion and there feels like limitations and there's there's kind of like you know internal turbulence no matter what strengths or struggles they bring to the picture and that means they don't always know either so sometimes when somebody offers an observation it actually offers that other person insight because in that minute they go do I do I do do that okay I think I also know why I do that. And so and and it's those moments of insight that shift people. Mm. That's that's what has to happen to shift. So if you're not holding your observations to someone and letting them play with them and think about them and decide whether they own them or whether they don't and whether they recognize them or whether they don't, you're missing some of the vital parts of observation work. Which is um, and there's a really lovely program, Australian program called um, uh, Wait, Watch, Wait and Wonder, which is all about child-led play, and it's really fabulous. You see what the child initiates, mm. and you follow them, and then you watch how they respond to you following them, and then you wonder about, oh, what are they trying to communicate or achieve by this? You know, um, and you then think about, well, how can I show that I'm curious? And then that then allows you to think, well, what does this tell me about child development or attachment or communication? You know, so so there's a whole range of 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 being curious through this watching. It's a it's a really lovely program. And I know that this is all our our um, these are very common social work skills we're talking about. But one of the things that I always think about is we're so lucky because we get time to think about our skills and unpick them and have these conversations. And for a lot of social workers, they're doing them, aren't they? They're just doing and perhaps not having the time to think about how do I actually really do that? Yeah, absolutely. And and people don't necessarily have the time to do it in the way that is allows it to be as as helpful as possible because it you know there's there's mm. there is both a science and an art to it you know you need to bring that expertise um, and, and make sense of the situated knowledge but there's an art to enabling that to happen and it's different for each person and one of the things that we persistently run into is the lack of time to do that mm. um, and so you know I wanted to just say about the kind of ethics of it um, I mean, one of the one of the fundamental things here is that you're not trying to get to an answer of who this person is because people are, we don't even understand ourselves. Mm. What you're trying to do is is um, is purposefully gain meaning for the thing that you have to do as a social worker with that yeah. person, um, and being really clear about that and the limitations of that. And I think that that goes back really strongly to the ethics of you know, both being purposeful, but also being really transparent about 
you know, a good observation and analysis of that looks like. It's not, mm. it's not the answer because mm. we can make really good, um, you know, uh, and make really good sense of things and make the best decision from that and things still might not work out because it's, mm. it's always going to be partial, but being clear about the partiality of it, um, you know, and you know, transparency about the purpose, transparency about doing it, you've talked about that, and then the other big ethic is, is transparency about how much we can actually, how much meaning we can actually draw from this. Mm. Um, I think that's really, really, you know, um, I think it was when I was working with older people, actually, um, in a residential um, environment on the Gold Coast, and uh, there was a doctor that I'd taken someone to see, and he asked the relative, can you tell me how your mother looks on her best day? What kind of things does she do? What would you expect? And he took the relative through what this woman would be like on her best day. And he said, okay, now tell me a little bit about what she looks like on her worst day. And he took the relative through that again. And then he went to meet her with information, contextual information about what she might look like if she was having a really good day, what she might look like if she was having a really bad day, um, so that he had uh, something to judge his little window against. Does that make sense? Because he was really well aware that he was just seeing this tiny snapshot in time. And you're trying to then fit person. that snapshot into a framework, aren't you, without yeah. The, the, yeah, things that things that have meaning in relation to other things so you need to have something yeah. to to compare what you're noticing against yeah um, and that, think, again that's got to be transparent hasn't it yeah and I thought that was just a really really lovely thing I've often remembered that that you know what we're seeing is absolutely just a snapshot of somebody um and observation also works two ways and so we're being weighed and measured and found wanting too. That's one of the things that I've learned over the past three years, you know, um, working more and more uh, with social services myself as, 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 a, as a, a service user. Um, I can tell you that that measuring happens both ways and people are making decisions about whether they want to form a partnership with us as well. So we're being observed. And so we always need to be thinking about how are we presenting ourselves? How are we showing a little bit of ourselves? And how are we, yeah, how, how, how are we interacting? I think that's, that's really important. You know, for me, the first rule of observation is to look at what's around the person, look at the things you don't see, and really remember we show very little of ourselves to strangers. We don't even show heaps. Some There are bits of ourselves we don't show to people we love. So we've got to be curious about those hidden bits as well, haven't we? And about the context and the time and, and, the, and the interaction yeah. when we're doing and I think I think work. fundamentally one of the things that you just made me think about is that if you've observed something that's informed your judgment, you need to be transparent about it in the explanation of your judgment. Mm. Um, because otherwise, how will the person understand you? Whether they go and look at your notes or not, yeah, how would mm. they understand why you what, thought what you thought? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and then I, you know, really that should be tested out and understood with them. Um, and it can be that can be really tricky. I know, and often in adult services, you have one one meeting with the person, and then you write things up and share it back. Mm. Um, but actually you're, you're moving on because mm. things are so fast paced. So checking those perceptions as we go, doing that reflection in action quite often is, is, is the real world. You know, that's mm. how it is. Um, but if we take something away and, and we're not sure, or we, we've, we've got something that we, um, that is significant, but we don't feel like we can put it down in paper, then that we need to, we need to check that out with colleagues and mm. and you know get get the reflection around it so that we can understand what we can do with that um, and be transparent. And I also think, Jerry, for me, that's all about context setting as well. If you have one hour with a person, 
that's fine. Say that's what you had. I had 60 minutes with this person. And in addition, I read a file that had the following key information. And I spoke to two people who told me these things. And that's what my judgment, and that's is, based what my judgment is based on. And then everyone who reads that document understands the necessary narrowness of that judgment. What I worry about is when I see records or when I talk to workers sometimes and they sound so certain about what they have decided about a person. And then when you dig into it, you find that they've only met them once for an hour or they've only done this or that. And and then you start to think, well, how can you be talking about this whole person with this, we, we have to be really clear, don't we? In the time I had, these were the things I thought about and this is what meaning I put on them. When I checked in with the person, this is what they told me. My job was to do this and this is the conclusion I've reached based on this stuff. Yeah. Then, then it's completely testable, isn't it? And then yeah. other decision makers can decide whether there's enough weightiness to make the type of decision you're asking them to make. And it's or not. resisting that pressure. I mean, this is more for for policymakers and leaders than it is for practitioners, because we're you. Know, um, when you're in direct practice, you're in the in the system, but there is this pressure on services, on on um, organisations to be able to make decisions that are hard and fast. Mm. This parent has a good relationship with their child, and this yeah. parent is dangerous mm. and this person you know, can't stay in their home this person and, and, and setting out how how what that decision is informed by and how far um you know, what what went into it i think is really helpful because we mm. do get um, things do turn out differently from how you want and when you, know, when you see a serious case review um and that the unpicking of um why people felt that the risk needed to be managed in this way and not in a different way. It relies on um, understanding how certain we could be. Mm. And I don't think it's reasonable to be very certain if you've had very limited interaction. Yeah. Um, and well, I think that... being clear about that is, is really, is really important um, because we get pushed into trying to be more certain than, than we maybe can be. And then that gets carried through. You know, that yeah. certainty gets picked up by someone else. It goes into a meeting and becomes like everybody's sure about this. Yeah. You know. We lose that curiosity. I think that's right. And observation above all is about curiosity. Mm. It is. It's about remaining curious, but it's also about being able to articulate really clearly what you notice and, and why you thought it mattered. And I always think we've got to go back to, well, so what does that observation mean to the person you're looking at? You know, you, this is the decision. This is the things you're thinking. What do you think it means to them? And and really try and bring it back the whole time to the person and remember that, you know, it's a two-way mirror. Yeah. It's not a one-way mirror. It's a two-way mirror that they're looking, we're looking. And that is kind of encompassed, I think, with the, the idea in adult services of, of having a conversation with someone. It doesn't mean that you lay aside, you know, if I'm coming out to, to meet with you, that I'm kind of doing a statutory assessment but it means that you're you're explaining that you're there to understand the person who they are what their life is like and what matters to them more and that encompasses both talking to them but also being around them mm. seeing seeing where they live seeing where mm. they are seeing who they are and you know what items they have around them um and again being transparent about that it's not yeah. just um it's not just a dialogue with words. It's a, it's a dialogue with looks as well, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's also, for me, that brings in the other thing, which is that you're not always going to be able to collaborate with people. You're not always going to agree with people. You're going to see things one way and the person will see them another way. And you might have to say, my knowledge, which is based on these things, and my experience, which is based on working in the field and seeing these things, means that actually I believe this thing I saw or heard or witnessed is serious for these reasons, and therefore these are the things we have to do. We do have to be able to 
do that challenge and use our observations as as evidence for that and accept that we're not always going to get the other person going, yeah, yeah, you know, like yeah. they're often going to say, well, I don't think that's right or I don't think that's fair or I don't agree with you or that's not true. Um, and then the observation become the, the reasoning behind our observation becomes so important, showing your workings out, demonstrating what meaning you put on it and why uh, becomes super important in those in those conflict moments as well. Mm. Yeah, I think I, I, I want to also note, because I've been thinking about this from the last podcast and also this one. Yeah, we've talked about this being loosely based around how we use our physical selves and the human senses. Of course, all of us have got different um, different ways of using our physical mm. selves and our senses and have you know, potentially faced some barriers in that or have some particular um you know, abilities in that and it's very different for different people and I think it's it's just worth noting that we're, we're talking about this in the broadest sense aren't we so mm. observation isn't just what you see um that's kind of where we started from um, yeah. it's it's what you notice but you notice through all of your body um, yeah so although we're kind of looking at things um drawing on particular themes because it's a way of structuring a series actually this it's all overlapping isn't it it um, really is that's right and you know if a uh, and and certainly um one of the things that I've learned from my um my dear English friend who turns ninety next month and um she has uh, is it molecular degeneration is that the right word that I've got is that where you can see just a narrower it gets narrower point. and narrower and yeah. narrower that's, that's exactly right. right yep um and it's been getting worse as she's got older and she's a very keen gardener. And um, as her visions lessened and lessened, her ability to tell about how her plant's health is, you know, in her big garden, walk around and touch them and feel them and smell them and notice the weight of the leaves and the moisture and all these. She's just she's just really built up on all her other senses to bring her powers of observation in so that she can talk about a plant in front of her. Honestly, Jerry, you would believe she could see like you or I through the language she's using and the way she's talking about it. And it takes a lot to remember. Oh, actually, she can't actually see much of this. Yeah. This but is, she can observe and she can but notice. But she can observe and notice. Exactly. And she's just built up adjust she has built up over the, as she's lost once one part of her senses she's building up other areas to to allow her to still notice and still do those things so yes that's a a good point for us to to um leave the podcast on i guess there's so much we could talk about in this 